Greetings, brethren. Hopefully you've had an outstanding week of unleavened bread. Isn't it exciting to be able to know the meaning of these holy days and the future that is before us, the plan of God, and it lights up our life if we allow it and points us to the future, things we need to do in our life? If I ask you how good is your eyesight, I might get a variety of answers from various people. Well, pretty good, I guess some might say, but I wear glasses, I need corrective lenses, contact lenses, whatever may be the case. Others might acknowledge that their eyesight has faded somewhat over a period of time due to cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, or maybe even long-term diabetes, unfortunately. Our eyesight is very precious to us, isn't it, when you think about it? If the average person was asked, of your five senses, which one of them would would you least want to give up? I think the vast majority would say, my eyesight, of course, I want to be able to see. Our eyes are a window into the world, as we know. Years ago, Helen Keller, who was born blind and deaf, was asked, what would be worse than being born blind? Kind of interesting uh, question to Helen Keller. And amazingly, her answer was being born with sight but without vision. What an incredible response. I think we can identify with that. An incredible response, having actual sight, but no vision, no vision and understanding. And this lady never had sight in all her life, but she had a measure of vision. She had a measure of insight, of being able to view the world through her mind's eye correctly. Putting it another way, one may have pretty good physical sight, pretty acute physical sight, but very poor spiritual sight, and that's not uncommon at all. In fact, it happens to every human being initially. And on this day, approximately 3,500 years ago, the children of Israel had their physical eyes open to the power of the great God. And it was very evident at that moment in time. And unfortunately, with that generation, their spiritual eyesight never developed, not at that time. They are extremely nearsighted. Let's turn to Exodus 14. Just a reminder, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10, beginning in verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, their physical eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. They had great physical eyesight. They could clearly see the Egyptians and probably their cloud of dust as well. So they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there was no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So they had no spiritual vision, no spiritual eyesight, even after the ten very dramatic plagues of Egypt. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, we know the story. We know the rest of the story. Verses 21 through 28, Israel saw the amazing intervention of the great God, uh, opening up, of course, the Red Sea. They, the Israelites saw it with their physical eyes very clearly, but they never opened their eyes spiritually to truly see their God and what he represented and what he offered them at that time. And on the 15th day of the second month, approximately 24 days later, they quickly forgot the power of their great God and they forgot his intention in their lives to establish them in a land flowing with milk and honey. You can find that in Exodus 16. Let's read that, verses 1 and 2. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Well, we know the journey from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, that difficult journey, as it turned out, for Israel, 
was extremely long and arduous because of their lack of vision of the true God, his purpose, and what he had planned for them. Moses sent Joshua and Caleb, of course, ten other spies, to look over the land of Canaan, to spy it out, as it were. And ten of the, of the spies at that time saw the big bad giants, you know, things that were, well, visually could be seen readily. Yet Joshua and Caleb saw an opportunity, not just big bad giants, but an opportunity to trust their God, to follow their God. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 30, Numbers 13 and verse 30. And then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. So Joshua and Caleb, they saw something different with their mind's eye, with their vision, and Caleb basically said, let's do it. And we don't care if there are giants in the land. Our God will see us through. So there was a big difference between Joshua and Caleb. They had truly spiritual vision. Of course, the other ten spies didn't. They only had physical vision. They could only see the giants of the land, the difficulties that they anticipated. The spiritual nearsightedness became a hallmark of Israel during most of their history, as we know. Most of their history, even through the many generations. Now, notice God's summary of the eyesight of Judah and, of course, all of Israel. Let's turn to Ezekiel. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 2. And verse 1, we'll start with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see. Notice that, eyes to see. They had physical eyes, but does not see in the fullest sense, in the spiritual sense, but does not see. And ears to hear, but does not hear. For they are a rebellious house. You know, in a similar way, you and I faced and will face the same options in the years ahead of us. God led Israel through the Red Sea at that time. And on this very day, that experience occurred. Their physical eyes saw it. But the journey wasn't over. They had much to accomplish. And you and I have been led through the water of baptism. And we have seen what God has done for us up to this point in time. But we are yet at the promised land. We have more to accomplish. We have more uh, experiences and tests ahead of us. Let's remind ourselves what Paul said to the Corinthians over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and beginning in verse 1. as As we well know, good reminder though, moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all fast through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, <clears throat> and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples. So we are reminded that what happened to Israel at that time is for our understanding. You know, we do have physical sight, but we need spiritual sight. We need vision as we journey to the promised land, to the kingdom of God. So we can either follow, we have a choice, the example of Joshua and Caleb, if we have spiritual vision, or we can follow the example of Israel who lacked that kind of vision, that kind of sight. So we can either walk by physical sight or we can walk by spiritual sight. Spiritual vision is an extremely rare commodity in this day and age. And, of course, that's something God wants us to develop as we understand the holy days, the meaning of all these holy days. Also notice again, bringing it kind of more up-to-date. Notice also Jesus Christ's warning to the Laodiceans in chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Revelation 3, verse 17. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. In other words, I have all this Bible knowledge and facts and figures, and I know the legacy of the truth, and I've got it all in my head. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind. We're talking about spiritual vision here. We're talking about a surrender to the great God, developing character, not just head knowledge, blind and naked. He goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. And we're generally talking about character, the mind of God, much more than just facts and figures. So we need that knowledge. We also need character. And you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes. Notice that. Anoint your eyes. Now, we have physical eyesight, but we're told to anoint our eyes with eye salve that you may see. Important warning to all of us. Of course, we want to be, we want to be Philadelphian. We want to be zealous, but we want to keep our eyes sighted with spiritual vision. To truly have spiritual sight, we must allow God himself to open our eyes, something the great God can do, and he will continue to do if we allow him. I think the uh, scripture that portrays that very well, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and I think a, a prayer in our own minds, that if we think about it often, Psalm 119, during unleavened bread, but all through the year, Psalm 119, and let's turn to verse 18, where it says, Open my eyes that I may see. You know, tremendous meaning and impact here as we understand it spiritually. Wondrous things from your law. So that's part of it, that God opens our, our eyes so that we can see and have understanding of the things of God, his law, his holy days, his way of life, the future. Open my eyes that I might see. And, of course, that's a, that's a lifelong project. It's not happened just at a moment in time, uh, perhaps before baptism, but that's a continuing process throughout our life, and we should want God to do that dramatically. Of course, that's, uh, in this case, the title of my sermon today, Open My Eyes That I May See, and a tremendous meaning that we can have during even unleavened bread as God wants us to rid ourselves of hidden faults and defects and vanity and ego and we need our eyes our spiritual eyes open uh, throughout our life so we can come to deeper understanding uh, through the word of god as god leads us and inspires us so today i'd like to spend a few minutes looking at several areas where we need god to open our eyes to literally open our mind's eye for our own benefit it's not just for God's purpose alone to make him happy, but it's also, it is for his purpose, but it's also for our benefit, which fits into his purpose. So I'm going to list approximately three areas where we should want God, we should ask God to open our eyes so we can see clearly, so we can understand even about ourselves, about the things of God more clearly. So number one, we need to ask God to open our eyes as it says here in the Psalms, to the wondrous things from his law. Of course, that's a, that's a mouthful. That's a, a, a huge concept. You know, the, the wondrous things from the law of God, the whole purpose of God, God's way of life, his future, uh, the plan of God is exemplified through these holy days. You know, for anyone who would come to God, it is absolutely critical that one begin to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt and understand that God's way of life is the path to a better life. It's not just to please the deity alone, but it is the path to a better life. The laws of God are the blueprint of human happiness, the master plan, the path, the way. And we need our eyes open to that fact. We need to understand. We need to grasp it and apply it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 Let's turn to the New Testament, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It says, Paul stated, but without faith, and I think of it as rock-solid confidence, not wishful thinking, not blind faith, but rock-solid confidence in the, in the great God and his plan. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That means he exists. He's real. It's not wishful thinking. It's provable. Of course, that's just the very beginning level of faith. That's like faith 101. But there is advanced faith. So many in society believe in some kind of God. Let's move on to a more advanced level of faith. Number two, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Key scripture, key concept, that if we seek God aggressively, he's going to bless us. He's going to bless us with a better life, a better future. You might say in a right way there's something in it for us. Now we want something in it for our loved ones and eventually all of humanity. But from Genesis to Revelation, a consistent message is blessings for obedience. We're going to benefit and later the rest of the world. I believe this is one of the fundamental scriptures, one of the fundamental concepts concerning God's way of life that we need to fully understand to spiritually see the reality. We're not trying to simply please God to make him happy. Yes, we want to do that, but we're also trying to please God. We're also in our life wanting benefits and blessings and a better way of life, and we have the path. God gives us the path. So God's way of life is not a drag. It's not a burden. It's not a sacrifice, there are the, though there are times when we do have to sacrifice, but it's not principally a sacrifice. The laws of God are like the, I think of them, are like the guardrails of, I would say, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, one of my favorite bridges, hundreds of feet above the water, and the guardrails keep us on the path. You know, we don't veer off into the water. We don't get close to the guardrails either, but the guardrails keep us on the path, keep us from death and destruction below. And I know uh, without those guardrails, I wouldn't get near to the right lane. So they give us safety, they give us direction, and that's the way it is with the laws of God. Let's go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 105. We look at God's word here, as the psalmist stated. Your word, in other words, the very word of God, all that's written and intended, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It lightens my path. In fact, he says, and a light to my path. So God's laws, they point the way to a better life, to a better future, to an outstanding future, but a, a better life today, even before the kingdom of God, that is, to the extent that we follow them. And that's up to us individually. We have to commit ourselves. We have to come to understanding. Hopefully, we seek understanding. We want to know God's law. We want him to open our eyes so that we may see, we may see the benefits in our life and, of course, for everyone else. Have you ever tried walking in your bedroom in the dark in the middle of the night? Maybe you're going to the restroom and you don't turn the light on, but you kick something and it hurts. Your toe or your shin or whatever. Maybe you fracture a toe. A lot of people have done that. And you really regret walking in the dark when that happens. You thought you knew the way. But you stumbled, you kicked something in the dark, and you regret it. It hurts. Same is true for us spiritually. If we're not walking in the light, in the clear light of the truth of God, sooner or later, we're going to injure ourselves. That always happens. Cause and effect is the way the laws of God operate. Now, I, have, I happen to have a 2 million candle power spotlight in, uh, in my car, in my van. I carry it just in case, yeah, just in case, in case I need it some dark night, maybe crossing the mountains or whatever. And the Word of God is far more valuable and significant to us in keeping us out of harm's way, out of danger, than any spotlight we could ever acquire. Psalm 18, another psalm, Psalm 18, verse 28. 1828, for you will light my lamp, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. And isn't that process we've been going through, that our lives have been enlightened, our, our eyes have been opened, we're coming out of darkness into the light of the truth, and that has to continue with greater and greater understanding for us individually, 
to apply it in our life. Now, I've worked with quite a few young adults over, over the years who were raised in the church, and they were exposed to the truth. But for one reason or another, there are different reasons. They thought the pasture, they thought the way of life might be greener on the other side of the fence. You know, we all sometimes think that way about one thing or another. Maybe something beyond our reach is better or greener. And often after five or ten years or 15 years, they hit a crisis stage in their life, a major event, and they begin to feel alone. They begin to wonder. They come to the conclusion that they really do need at some point some direction in their life. And that applies whether they're single or married. They need a personal trainer. They need a guide. They need a life coach, one that will function as a guide and and light their path and give them more surety and meaning and purpose and a future. Again, the psalmist prayed, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Again, that's Psalm 119, verse 18. None of us have a full and total understanding of the benefits of God's way of life. Now, we have a partial understanding, and that's a blessing and a benefit. But we, we all need to ask God, Father, open my eyes to the wondrous benefits of your laws, your way of life. I don't want to be lukewarm. You know, I, I don't want to straddle the fence. I don't want to miss out on a better life in the present and a future that's beyond my imagination. Open my eyes. Open my understanding that I might see. Help me to see myself, as we'll look at in a moment. So we're talking about real understanding, which brings motivation that will light our fire. See, understanding is a key. When we really understand the law of God, we see it's good for us. We want it. We don't have to force ourselves to do right. We want the blessings. We want the benefits. We're sold on it. So God wants to share with us a state of mind, a way of thinking, a way of living, of course. It far surpasses anything that the world has to offer. So God wants us to live not with a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Of course, that's 2 Timothy 1.7. That is the mind of love and joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. At least the world can't understand it in us. We're not the wealthy or the great of the world. And everyone on the planet, including the worst criminal or the worst dictator, wants a level of joy and peace in their life. Most people call that happiness. They lump it together. And the world wants what we have access to, which we can have. They just don't know how to get it, how to arrive. Of course, that is by the law of God, my understanding and applying the law of God. So you and I can ask God to open our eyes to the wonders of the law of God. And we're speaking of a deeper level of understanding so it makes sense to us, so we can put it together, the cause and effect of the laws of God that are automatic, blessings for obedience, and, of course, penalties in our life, heartache, suffering, when we violate the spirit of the law as well. And in turn, this leads us to the path to a more successful life today. Yes, in the kingdom of God, but for today, a more successful life, of course, forever. It leads to the kingdom of God and future resurrections, but forever, a better way of life, blessings. Well, that was point number one concerning, in this case, opening our eyes to understand the law of God in application. Number two, what else should we ask God to open our eyes to see? Well, number two, we should ask God to open our eyes so we can see ourselves as he sees us. Now, that sounds maybe a little bit of, uh, of a concern or a threat. Some initial response might be, well, wait a minute, hold it. You know, uh, I'm not stupid. I wouldn't want God to show me how he sees me probably sees me as a failure and I make so many mistakes I don't really want to see myself as God does but in truth compared to God we are all failures and we fail daily probably in the spirit of the law when God has called us out of the world to succeed to be successes 
John chapter 6. Let's look at Christ's statement about that as far as our calling, as far as God's intention and Jesus Christ's intention. John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. In other words, Jesus Christ said, this is the will that all that the Father has given him as the head of the church, that he would lose no one, not a single one of us that is called and chosen, continuing, but should raise it up, should raise him up at the last day, that will be resurrected or changed. That's God's intention. That's God's will. He doesn't call failures. Of course, we need God's help. Without Christ, without God, without God's Spirit, we're all failures. Verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. That applies to us. And I will raise them up at the last day. That is the will of God. That is the intent of God. We can bank on it. Of course, we can fail God. But God intends for us to succeed if we're willing. If we're willing to seek him, to depend on him fully. So God has called us, as we know, as the weak of the world, not the high and the mighty, not the self-starters who accomplish so many things in corporations and nations, but we're primarily the weak of the world. But he intends for us to succeed far beyond what the world is succeeding with right now, even at their highest level. So why should we ask God to open our eyes to see us, to help us, see ourselves as he sees us. Why should we ask God to do that? Isn't that a little bit threatening, disconcerting? Well, simply because it is the path to greater success in this life. It is the formula. It is the path. And when we ask God to show us where we need to change, to open our eyes so we can see where we're off a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit over there, when God opens our eyes, enabling us to see where we need to change, it is going to benefit us. It is going to benefit us and our loved ones and, of course, congregations and eventually all of humanity. So it's going to benefit our present life right now and, of course, in the future as well, the years ahead of us also. Every single time God shows us something that we're receptive to, that we realize, you know, I need to change this. I need to refine it. I've been too long, too self-centered, too vain, too egotistical, too whatever. I can have a better life if I change it, if we have that kind of understanding. Well, not wanting to see where we are harming ourselves or our loved ones is really self-destructive. If we want to avoid it, we hide our eyes. We think we need to be right all the time. Our ego, our vanity won't take correction. It is self-destructive according to the law of God, according to the way of cause and effect of the spiritual laws of God. It's like having an infected thorn in one's foot causing a substantial infection and not wanting to do anything about it, just leaving it there, leaving it alone. And if we ignore an infection, generally it will get worse and we suffer more pain. We suffer difficulty, could be even the loss of a leg or, or a foot. So asking God to open our eyes, to fully open our eyes, to see things that we need to change. That is, we might say, asking God for gentle correction. I think of it as gentle correction. So God gently works with us at the level he, he knows we can handle. It's not punishment. We're not asking for punishment. We're asking for gentle correction, for mid-course cor corrections as we travel. It is a huge blessing, and we have more success, and we are more successful in this life. You may have heard some time back about a small plane whose pilot uh, keeled over. I believe he had a heart attack, and he was piloting this small plane. And one of the passengers took control. I think there's only maybe two or three passengers, but they took the controls and started taking directions from another experienced pilot who was in the control tower or in contact with it. And he, he would take instruction, 
alter this, change this, set that, keep your eye on this. <clears throat> and amazingly, instructions and mid-course correction were constantly radioed to the plane, and the plane landed safely. The first time this individual had ever piloted a plane, but he took direction and correction willingly, and he landed safely, and people's lives were saved. Now, what if the inexperienced person flying the plane resented instruction, re resented correction, let's say, mid-course corrections from the con control tower, at least from the experienced pilot? What if the attitude to the control tower was, you can't tell me what to do. I'm in charge here. I'll do it myself. <laughs> you know, obviously that mindset would be self-destructive and pretty harmful. The end point would have been death. I mean, you'd think nobody is that vain. You know, they can't take some correction, some direction from authority or otherwise. One thing that we have to be aware of, God's method of pointing out our deficiencies, pointing out, uh, let's say, needed changes in our life. You know, it's difficult, but it may also come through others around us. It may come through a husband or a wife it may come through our own children, which may be uh, a little bit difficult if they're respectful, but still, it's our own children. It may come through other church members on occasion. You see something that's kind of out of kilter in us. It may come through the ministry. Of course, that's one of their functions in, 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 in love to help others succeed. God doesn't currently, we know, he doesn't currently send emails of correction and instruction there isn't normally handwriting on the wall. Maybe it's happened once. We know it has in history, but that's not typically what God does. He doesn't give us correction or instruction that way. So we must be open to all the avenues of God's communication in our life, every last one of them, to be, to be looking for some guidance, some gentle correction. We all know, I know it's difficult. We don't like the thought of changing, that we're not right. But if we think of it in, a, in another sense, that where God shows us that we need to change, inevitably we benefit. We have a better life, a better future, more stability, more happiness, more peace. We might say stronger families, stronger marriages. And that's something we all need to come to see, to have our eyes open to understand being open to correction from others can be contrary, as we know. It's contrary to our nature. We grow up self-centered. We're human beings. Uh, Self-centeredness is rampant among human beings. You know, he, human nature tends towards defending oneself at all costs, depending on our level of, of retaining that nature. But if we stop and think, you know, there may be something in this for me, something in this for me to learn that I might benefit that I might have a better life, a better future, that my family, my wife, my husband, my children, a congregation, whatever, there may be some benefit that we're going to enjoy. And, of course, we all want benefits, don't we? I mean, that's the way we're programmed. We want a better life. We want benefits. Sometimes we just don't see them. We haven't allowed God to fully open our eyes to that degree. So the bottom line is we can either choose to learn the easy way in life open to instruction, correction, direction from the great God and through his servants as well. Or we can learn the hard way. You know, that, that's a choice we have. It is our choice. We can choose the easier route when we ask God to open my eyes that I may see myself as you see me. Help me to grasp. You know, help me to understand. Give me now what I need. Help me to be open to your correction of course, then give me the strength to make that change and give me the motivation, the understanding, knowing that I will benefit, my loved ones will benefit, I'm going to have a better life, there's a better future. It's the path to everything good that I could ever want in this life and the life to come. Well, obviously, when we ask God to open our eyes, to fully open our eyes, we want to ask him, again, to correct us gently. You know, it's not... Uh, just give it to me. <laughs> we ask God to correct us gently. He knows how much we can handle at the moment. You know, we're all weak. We all have a ways to go. 
He knows what we're made of. He understands our frame. He knows us better than we know us. And we have to have that confidence then in God when he, he corrects us. And in the end, God knows we can handle it with his inspiration and guidance. Psalm 103. Let's turn to Psalm 103 and verse 11. And we see some of that reassurance. Psalms 103 and verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. God has a lot of mercy, a lot of love, a lot of compassion. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he's working with us. Verse 13, now notice this. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You know, if we fear God, if we trust him, if we have that kind of confidence in the great God that we can, we can ask him to gently correct us, to show us where we need to change, God pities us like, like we do our, you know, our youngest children. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He made us. Jesus Christ walked this earth. They both understand our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So we're not spirit beings, though we have the spirit of God and the human spirit. But we're dust. We're still physical. We've got a lot of baggage. We come out of the world. This is Satan's world. We're still physical. We still have things to overcome. And God remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He's a merciful God. He's a loving guide, a loving father. And and that can give us additional assurance and and trust god's not going to give us more than we can handle all at once we ask god to correct us gently to open our eyes so we can see ourselves you know a step at a time of course well jesus christ understands our frame he is the creator of all life that exists and as i mentioned he lived life in the flesh and he existed for 33 years 33 and a half years on the planet He's had that experience. He's our creator. He walked this earth. He was tempted and tried. And we can trust him to show us the way to refine us, to gently correct us at the level we need, when we need it. That is, if we want a better life, that should be our motivation. We want a more successful future. We trust our God. He's not going to ruin us. He's not going to throw us aside we're going to benefit. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Consistent message, Old Testament, New Testament. We can trust the great God to guide us, to show us the path, to correct us. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Chapter 10 and verse 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. That applies to you and me. We can know that. It is not in man who walks to, to direct his own steps. We just don't have the wisdom, the understanding, the level of conversion. On our own, we, we simply will go nowhere. We'll stumble. Verse 24, O Lord, correct me. Notice that. And if we want a better future for our own good, correct me, but with justice. You know, and we might say gently, not in your anger. We ask God to correct us gently. And the way he knows is best for us. We can handle it. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. In other words, I'm nothing compared to you, God. So correct me. Show me where I need to change with mercy, with justice, with loving compassion. Truly, our God wants us to succeed. And again, he doesn't call failures. He doesn't invite failures into his family. Uh, in the end, we're not the high and the mighty, but with his help, he will see to it that we succeed. That is, if we're willing, if we're willing to be corrected, if we trust the great God. So he wants us to succeed beyond our wildest imagination. I mean, fully, even in this life, we don't have full understanding, but at the spirit level, with strong, stable minds, a deeply converted mindset is very, very stable. Solid, consistent, not full of fear and worry 
and anxiety. A deeply converted mind is very, very stable. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. And speaking of God blessing us beyond our wildest imagination, meaning we haven't even thought through it. We have an outline, but we don't know the fullness of it. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, not fully, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, we in the church, as we have God's truth, we have God's spirit, we understand a great deal, but we don't understand the full reality of it. For those of us who love him, who trust him, who look to him to gently correct us, even years after baptism, uh, we've got a long way to go, and each of us should realize that. We should want more for ourselves and of ourselves, a better future, more stability in our life, more successful relationships, I might say, within our family or within marriage, within our congregation. God wants us to have a great future. Let's move on to a third area, third and final area, that we should ask God to open our eyes that we might see, to fully open our eyes spiritually, our understanding. Number three, we need to firmly see in our mind's eye, in our mind's eye, the big picture, the big picture of God as God sees the big picture. And bringing us to a much higher level of understanding the big picture that can lead to motivation, that can lead to tremendous joy as we anticipate the future, can keep us going through even kind of the ups and downs of life, and we all have them. We're all, we all have to pass tests. We all do have tests, as God told Israel, that he brought them through the wilderness and he tested them so he might know what was in their heart. Of course, we need those tests. God needs to know what's in our heart, and of course, we need to know too for our own good. We, we need to know. So we need to have that big picture. The Israelites, as we know, lost the big picture of their tremendous, overwhelming blessing as the premier nation on the earth, what God was promising them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if they would have just opened up and looked to God for understanding, what a tremendous blessing. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, now it shall come to pass if, so uh, there is this possibility, if they would follow God, if, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, the premier nation on the planet with tremendous blessings. You know, any nation would want this. And all these blessings, verse 2, shall come upon you and overtake you and have overtake them with abundance. Wow. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city. Now, there were cities and there will be cities in the millennium, but not blighted with slums and disease and poverty, but blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country in the fullness of the country without, let's say, without pollution, with a beautiful environment, and wherever the Israelites would exist in their country. Verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your body. They would prosper. They would grow strong. The produce of your ground, the ground would raise healthy produce uh, that would bring health, not disease, that would not be uh, produce that's deficient, of minerals and nutrition, the produce of the ground and the increase of your herds and abundant cattle and flocks that are healthy, nutritious, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. They wouldn't be subset, they wouldn't be open, I guess, to hoof and mouth disease or this, that, or the other. And blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl in your kitchen. There's going to be an abundance of nutritious food, and blessed shall be you be when you come in, and when you go out, coming and going all your life, you're going to be blessed, and the Lord will cause your enemies to rise 
against you to be defeated before your face. No need for a standing army, as we understand. And they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. They'll be terrified by the power of the great God. And the Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses, in your, we might say, in your, in your local small workshops as well. And in all to which you set your hand. It's all going to be, if you set your life, it's all going to be to the blessing of God. Whatever you set your hand to, as long as you follow God. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a blessed future. And the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, as he's promised to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, and then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you properly, afraid of those obeying God who are obedient to the laws of God. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods. And it will be an abundance in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock. So everything that you're involved in and in the produce of your ground, summarizing again, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, and the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, no droughts. You know, what a blessing. And to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. It's truly not the case of this nation today, at least in the United States of America. We're beginning to borrow and borrow and borrow indebtedness. And, of course, that is not according to the will of God. If we were obeying God, there were blessings for obedience. And so we see what a tremendous opportunity. But the Israelites lost the big picture. They quickly lost the big picture. And all they could see was what was right in front of them at that very moment. They could see with their physical eyes, but not the blessings of God that he had promised and they were very nearsighted, spiritually, in that sense, nearsighted. What's in front of them right now, but not tomorrow or down the road in the promised land. And they began thinking slowly about the immediate, about the here and now, rather than what God was offering them uh, in the land of Canaan. They began to think about present tense. Well, I want water right now, meat to eat right now leeks and garlic back in, in Egypt, having a king like the surrounding nations so he could be looked at as an equivalent nation, and so on. If our eyes are primarily focused on our job today, on our career, on our bank account, or even our health, we'll be nearsighted. If we don't have the bigger picture, if we don't understand it, we'll be nearsighted. We'll, we'll see the things immediately around us, but we won't see... The future, we won't see the promises of God, and we'll be fearful, and we'll be worried. But if we walk with God, if we have that big picture, we can have courage and confidence as we travel through the remaining journey to the promised land, as God promised Israel. If our eyes are open to the incredible blessings that God has in store for us, if we literally, literally, figuratively, at least in our mind's eye, if we see what God has in store for us, we will more clearly understand the plan of God, live the plan of God, long for the plan of God. As we see, Scripture tells us, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And what a wide-open promise. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. All things, including eventually, of course, the universe, that's Revelation 21, 7. The firstborn sons of God will be given the ultimate blessing of having the greater responsibility in the family of God. The more responsibility that you've been prepared for, that you've allowed God to prepare you for, to gently guide you and correct you and prepare you, the more opportunity that you will have to receive a higher level of satisfaction and fulfillment as you're able to give more fully to others in the millennium and the second resurrection, of course, this won't be then greater opportunity. It's not just for a year or for a lifetime, evenly speaking, 
but for all of continuing eternity. As we understand it, as we see clearly, we will have the opportunity to work successfully with thousands of what will become, in a way, our own families during the millennium, human beings that will identify with us and will have a sense of fulfillment. It's not ego fulfillment. It's joy in seeing others succeed. Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. I think this is a blessing to think about the fulfillment of this as we become attached to human beings and we see them succeed and they identify with us. Micah chapter 4 and verse 5 says, For all people, particularly during the millennium but the second resurrection, for all people walk each in the name of his God. Of course, we see that with a small g. In the name of his God, as we read here, in other words, we will be the local representative of the God family. It's referring to us as firstborn sons of God. They'll identify with us personally, yes. They'll identify with Jesus Christ and God the Father. But we'll work with them personally. All people will walk each in the name of his God, his local representative of the God family. But we, firstborn, firstborn sons of God, will walk in the name of the Lord our God. And we will take direction, of course, from God the Father through Jesus Christ. And we'll represent the God family on the earth at that time. The huge blessing, and as we understand it here, and I think a lot of mothers can more readily identify with this, is that we'll have a very large family to work with in the millennium. And we, and we can say the second resurrection. But there will be no shortage of resources or energy We'll have unlimited energy. It's not like we're tired. We wish we had more income, more this, more that, more the other. Unlimited energy without any need whatsoever for sleep. You know, that's a waste of time in the, in the kingdom of God as sons of God. We'll be tireless. It'll be a thing of the past to be tired and needing to kind of be unconscious for eight hours or whatever. There will also be the full resources of the family of God to draw on. So no limitations as we have now. Oftentimes we could do more if we had more. We have constant financial restraints in our lives. That'll be history. For now, it's part of our training to trust God, to rely on God, even in the work of God. But those restraints will be history as we have the full resources of the family of God. I think for starters, the firstborn will have the wonderfully unique opportunity of helping usher in the transformation, the total transformation, the change. It will take a tremendous creative effort of changing the planet from Satan's war-torn society, uh, what will come out of, of course, the period of years ahead of us in World War III as well, to a joyous and fulfilling, perfect society as human beings begin to follow God and as we begin to change society and bless them as they seek God. It will be a creative effort, totally unique, that will involve our efforts at that time, guided by Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, we can count on it, will give us direction. As sons of God, we'll probably have seminars. But he's not looking for yellow pencils. He'll give us the outline and, and then we'll apply it in our area. Maybe, for example, how to how to construct a pollution-free world. You know, Jesus Christ is the master physicist and creator, and he'll give us the principles, and, and we will have to apply it. And we'll find some things work a little better in some areas than others, and we'll share ideas with each other. But it'll be a tremendously creative effort, and in that sense, a greater level of fulfillment as we see the work of our hands and of the government of God. So in a sense, we're... And we will be innovators, again, not robots, but we'll apply all the instruction from Jesus Christ as he updates us. But we won't be robots. We'll be innovators under Christ's guidance, and it will be an overwhelming creative effort, and we'll have a tremendous sense of fulfillment as we apply the principles, as we see human beings under our authority begin to succeed at a higher level of success. And I'm sure marriages that are a higher level of success than any of us have ever experienced, that is, after a few generations, 
You know, all of us come out of the world. We have baggage. We're surrounded by Satan's system. But a few generations into the millennium, when children are raised by parents who never knew Satan's world, that's fully when we begin to have the fullness of the spirit of the law of God in application. And we'll see that success, and it will bring tremendous joy and fulfillment and, I'll say, pleasure in our life as we see others succeed. In a sense, again, we'll be the innovators, the firstborn, the small group, the smallest part of God's family, the firstborn of God's family. And we'll be blessed with that creative effort and that guidance and that satisfaction, but that guidance from Jesus Christ. Notice another aspect as we think of the big picture of the firstborn blessing. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. Revelation 3, verse 12. He who overcomes. Of course, that's speaking to us today now. Who fully overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. A pillar in the temple of God. Incredible. So apparently we are to become a central, stable part of the whole edifice of the family and the government of God, as we read in Revelation 21:12, The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we will be pillars as we look forward through the millennium and the second resurrection and beyond. We will be pillars, in other words, principal members of support of the family of God forever. That's our calling. That's why it is a better resurrection, as Scripture tells us. It's a greater blessing and a greater joy to help a greater number of people, a greater number of successful spirit beings, sons of God in the future. So what does it mean when it says we will go out no more? We see that again in Revelation 3, verse 12, that same verse. Well, it goes on to say that we will be identified with God in name and the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Incredible. It says we will be identified with God in name and with the heavenly city of Jerusalem. That's out beyond the second and third resurrection, of course, by that time. The heavenly city of Jerusalem the headquarters of the vast universe, the very government of God, it would appear that the firstborn are forever associated with the headquarters of the government of God as God spreads his family through the universe, through the galaxies, and his program yet into the future. <clears throat> so the tens of billions of second, we could say secondborn, at least they're the second group in the millennium, tens of billions in the millennium, secondborn, and whatever it is, 40, 50, 60 billion third-born members, at least they're part of the third group. And those billions, of course, appear to be administered by the firstborn. Birth order is not changed in human families. Birth order is not changed in the family of God. As sons of God, we will always be firstborn, rather, more fully trained in this sense, in Satan's world, in a difficult age, being tested and tried, almost like behind enemy lines. And, of course, as special forces, the firstborn of the family of God, we must prove that God's way of life works for us, even in Satan's world. That's our challenge. That's our calling. That's our responsibility, to prove to ourselves, of course, and to others. God's way of life works for us. doesn't matter it works for somebody else it must work for us or god to enable us to teach it and to train others by the thousands and millions in due time romans chapter 8 let's look at romans chapter 8 and again one of the most eye-opening scriptures in the bible as far as the future as far as the greater plan of god romans chapter 8 and verse 19 i think this is incredible to anticipate says, for the, ver the earnest expectation of the creation, the entire creation of the great God of Jesus Christ, eagerly waits 
for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's like the universe is out there waiting for the family of God to begin its, you might say, purpose that God the Father and Jesus Christ has in mind, yet future. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, and that indeed is the case, the entire creation subjected to the laws of physics, second law of thermodynamics, all organized energy disperses in time. We know that's things disorder. It's, it's the law of the universe. We know the case. Mountains erode. We've all seen it. People age. They get old. They die. Metal rusts. And so it goes. It's the way of the universe. But because of him who subjected it in hope. So it says here, it implies here, God created the universe, subjected it in hope. He didn't intend to keep it this way forever. He's going to alter the formula or the changes the laws of physics. We don't know, but we're part of the solution. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or decay, its current state of entropy, it will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Stars burn out. We know planets in time corrode and are bombarded. But it says here, the sons of God are going to liberate the universe. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together into now. So in reality, it's very clear the plan of God looks forward to the time when he uses the sons of God, his very sons, to liberate, liberate the universe, to finish the creation, as Mr. Armstrong used to say. So, so apparently, the children of God will finish the job under God's loving guide, guidance throughout the galaxies, throughout the galaxies, however many there are. Some say there may be a trillion, a thousand billion galaxies, each one having a hundred billion, I believe, potential stars and planets and on and on. And as we think about it, how would you like to operate and communicate from the headquarters of the universe as we think ahead of us? The dazzling heavenly city of Jerusalem, which appears to be uh, the administrative location of the firstborn sons of God. Lovingly coordinating perhaps thousands of other very powerful sons of God, those who were trained during the millennium and the second resurrection. And they may be on assignments to, of course, other reaches of the galaxies. We'll wait and see what all God has in mind, but that's the appearance and the evidence of Romans chapter 8 as we read it. And it goes on to say later in the book of Revelation, towards the end of the book of Revelation, that that city, we think of the headquarters of the eventual government of God, that city, that heavenly city of Jerusalem, was pure gold like clear glass, highly polished gold. When it's highly polished and unoxidized, it reflects like clear glass reflects light and beauty, of course. Of course, that's just a small taste of uh, Revelation chapter 21. I won't cover more detail of it, but that's just part of the picture. That is part of the headquarters of the government of God, part of our future. And as stupendous as this sounds, as this seems, the family of God, for us as, especially for us as firstborn, it's not about human vanity and ego and self-elevation. It's about the opportunity for greater service, of greater joy, greater fulfillment in the family of God as we help others and we have joy through their success, just like God the Father has joy through our success, the sons of God. And of course, that we'll have a greater opportunity to contribute and to give to the plan of God and through the plan of God as firstborn children that the others will not have to the same degree. That is, those that might be second-born, at least during the millennium, the second group, or the third-born, third group in the second resurrection. And we know the plan of God will go on forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So God has a plan. He doesn't just retire after a few billion years, after the universe is remade. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, Isaiah 9, 7. So God hasn't revealed to us, let's say, that portion as we reach out beyond Romans 8. Or, yes, Romans 8. 
But we know the increase will continue, and God will use his family for exciting projects into the future. It all begins for each of us individually with our willingness, even now, to allow God to open our eyes that we may see. We have to apply that to ourselves individually. Open my eyes that I may see. Well, this should be our goal, hopefully, not just before Passover or during the week of unleavened bread. And it's important at that time to analyze ourselves, to have our eyes open more fully. But throughout the year, throughout the remainder of our life, we want God to open our eyes, help us to see the potential, to see the blessings, to see the future, to look inward, to be able to realize that we limit ourselves to the extent we violate the spirit of the law. We bring harm to our life, our loved ones, to others. We, gotta, we have a more great future and potential than we even imagine. If we just open our eyes to allow God to show us clearly. Well, we want God to open our eyes then so that we may see, to see the wonders of God's law and his way of life, to see ourselves as God sees us, to enable us to pattern ourselves after God himself. That results in a tremendously greater future and existence and joy. And finally, to see fully the big picture of the awesome plan of God and, of course, our incredible future. It involves us, but equally important, more importantly, it involves potentially all of humanity, not just us. With that kind of vision, with that kind of spiritual vision, we won't get stuck in the wilderness like the children of Israel did. We won't get stuck in the wilderness of this evil society. We will arrive safely in the promised land of the kingdom of God and we'll experience joy and fulfillment forever if we only allow God to open our eyes that we may see.